0: This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things Mecca, be it nuclear powered or otherwise. This is PMC Trilogy. I'm still on the hosting desk. Uh, Steven is still out, t- tending to some of his uh, gory wounds, uh, as, we, as we'll as discuss later in this episode of Gunbuster. Uh, but I am not alone. I'm joined by two excellent friends of the podcast. Of course, I have with me uh, Ethan Hawker. Hello. Glad to be back. And Sheena, a.k.a. Miss Macross.
1: Hey, happy to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you for uh, you know for stepping in and uh, making the time to talk some some Gunbuster with us. I'm going to drop some quick quick podcast updates before we get it deep into the Gunbuster stuff. But of course, right now we are in the middle of that Gunbuster coverage. Uh, there will be further episodes beyond covering the novelization of Gunbuster, as well as a simulator episode on the uh, games associated with Gunbuster, in particular the PC Engine games, the PS2 game. And maybe some of the weird erotic stuff. Who knows? Uh, I want to mention for patrons that our finale for Witch for Mercury, Raider Free Mercury uh, 24, should be out by the end of the week. Uh, we'll be recording that soon uh, with guest fees. So that should be a lot of fun. We also plan to do retrospectives like we did for Core 1 with Core 2. Uh, those will probably be recorded and released in September. And one last note. Uh, work is deep underway on the assault suits Falcon simulator uh we are currently hashing together history notes uh, we actually did a a stream of that uh for for june uh so check that out on my twitch page you know, twitch.tv slash pmc trilogy if you want to see us get a taste of that and obviously anyone can view that uh, and then for the simulator patrons that episode will be out to you uh, hopefully in in a few weeks uh, but let's get to the topic. This is the uh, actually the fiftieth mainline episode, Giant Robot FM fifty. We're going to be discussing Gunbuster episode three, and I figure this was a good time. A good time as enemy. So the the guests that I had on last week, uh, we you know they were on for our history episodes, so it wasn't necessary to kind of rehash a a personal history with Gunbuster or thoughts on on the new Disco Tech release. So I thought that would be a good a good topic for our warm up for getting into it. Uh, let me lead off w- uh, with you, Sheena. What is your uh, personal history with Gunbuster? And then, you know, do you have any thoughts on the new Disco Tech release?
1: Um, yeah. So I very much love Gunbuster. I love Gunbuster so much. I have I have it tattooed on my arm. Um, I first <laughs> I first saw. Um, I think it was it was Gunbuster versus Diebuster. It was on Hulu very briefly many years ago, and. I was like blown away by by the ending, and like looked it up and was like, "Oh, it's not just a movie; it's an OVA." So, like, I I've probably watched it like five or six times at this point. Um, it's just it's just a show that I really really appreciate, really like to revisit. Um, and I got really excited when when the discotech release was announced to the extent that I bought my first Blu ray player. And then I moved in with my boyfriend. He's like, "I have a PS four. You don't need a Blu ray player." So. Anyways, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I, um, no, no, I
0: I actually had that same exact thing happen where, where my my spouse brought a a Blu-ray, a standalone Blu-ray player into the house with all her MCU Blu-rays, and I was like, I have a PS3 and a PS4.
1: Yeah, I didn't I didn't like even think about it. I was just like, man, I was just so excited. But eh, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but I was really I was really happy with the Discotech release. release. Um, I. I was really impressed with the dub because obviously I've only ever I've only ever really watched like I watched the I watched the I guess official sub for gunbuster versus diebuster but I've only ever watched unofficial subs otherwise so listening like being able to like listen to the dub for the first time and actually being like a, a what I consider a very good dub i was I was really happy Th-
0: that's such an interesting i the one thing I want to hi- uh, highlight there is, is one of the reasons I, I also really do want to ask this personal history question is because Gunbuster has been around, you know, for so long. It's uh, it's a work that's been around for a few decades and people have encountered it in all sorts of different ways. And I think, you know, that right there uh, is, is a great example of like, oh, this is how this, you know, how it found its way. Uh, credit to, to, even though Steven is not recording uh, the podcast uh, this week with us. Uh, you know he's still hard at work in the uh, the posting mines, and he had a good post that was like Gunbuster releases. You know tracking how how anime is distributed, and it was like Gunbuster and VHS price, Gunbuster and DVD price, and then and then, and then this recent Blu ray release. And I think that's like a really <laughs> a really good microcosm <laughs> is is finding the the Gunbuster versus Diebuster release on uh, on Hulu. It was it
1: was weird, but it was a it was a great surprise. I'm glad it came into my life
0: what about you ethan
2: yeah uh, before i even get into the gunbuster talk uh hulu uh for some reason was very briefly a really good spot to watch a lot of uh, classic anime um i remember they had all three seasons of robotech for a time as well as i can't remember if they had southern cross and Mospita, but they did have the original sdf macross uh with the adv dub and the um, original japanese language audio um so strange. I, I don't know why just cuz I don't really think of hulu in that capacity. Mm-hmm. Um but no, my uh, personal history with gunbuster is um I watched it once in high school. I really liked it, admittedly, but I never really revisited. Um I uh, acquired it through means. Um I think at one point I s- like the uh, gunbuster DVDs were not terribly available and I saw the cover and I thought it was a bootleg uh, because mm. famously <laughs> that that uh, that Oneyami's release uh, that Bandai Visual, rather, release. Um, it, it's it got a toy of the Gunbuster sort of photoshopped on it, uh, and it looks weird. It looks kind of like a fakey thing. Um, uh, I famously also got tripped up by um, a release of uh, Do You Remember Love uh, that was... Uh, actually a bootleg uh so maybe i'm not the best judge of these sort of things
0: i agree i agree with you completely though because uh steven lent me the uh the, the hanami's label release of royal space force and every time i look at it i'm like this is a bootleg dvd <laughs> this has got to <laughs> be a bootleg dvd
2: it's so strange too because like they uh the gunbuster vs. Ibuster release is really premium and like the chipboard art box and everything and the, uh or like those pat labor releases um, those are really good. And then they have this thing with like the, just the toy slapped in because they wanted... To, I, I have no idea what the, the thought process was there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, just a few of them look kind of chintzy. Uh, the, the Freedom, uh, the that weird like Otomo CG OVA thing, uh, similarly has this kind of weird like, slip cover that makes it look like a bootleg to, in my eyes every time I see it. Um, but uh, the subject at hand, the actual show, um, I watched it once and I remember really enjoying it. Um, I, I, I admittedly... Uh, been kind of primed for I, I, the concept of like time dilation and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. having uh, read uh, particularly to uh, briefly mentioned it last episode, uh, the Forever War by Joe Haldeman, which which plays in several similar spaces, um, uh, so. Uh, But it's still a gut punch in in the OVA proper. Like, I just had a bit more of an idea of where it was going than uh, some other viewers might have. Um, And, you know, it's not about predicting what the text is going to say. Uh, But no, I I really enjoyed it, but I just uh, never got around to revisiting it. Usually when I would show anime to, like, my my group of friends, um, when I would show their retro anime, uh, it was very infrequently subtitled titles because they weren't, like, big anime Mm. heads. Despite the fact that I think they would have loved Gunbuster if only this dub had been around, like... uh, eight years ago now, uh, whenever I was in high school, I don't want to think about that too much. Um, <laughs> I'm turning uh, into a skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, um, I remember really enjoying, it, uh, that initial watch through. And I remember being very excited, uh, at like a family function when that discotheque Blu-ray was announced and I was, like, very excited and had really had no one to share it with because nobody in my family likes anime. Mm. Uh, they wouldn't they would care. Uh, but I was ecstatic about it, especially with a new dub. Um, and I think uh, that Blu-ray release that they put out is uh, ultimately quite good. Um, any any limitations to it vis-a-vis the, like, the Jonathan Clements commentaries that are missing or any, anything that's missing, I, I know that they put about as much on the disc as they possibly can. Um So I recognize it was probably just, it was definitely, actually, I think they confirmed it uh, on stream last time that the licensor said no go on those uh, Clements commentaries, Um, which is a shame. Uh, But again, uh, what we have, which is, you know, a fully dubbed uh, gunbuster. Uh, and some just really well-done, like, in terms of presentation, like, subtitles especially. Um, I know Steven made a post about that, how they actually timed them and futzed with the the X and Y position and rotation and everything to make them, uh, like, particularly for the signs and songs uh, material there. Uh, It's really impressive, and uh, a level of effort you rarely see on uh, releases in general.
0: Yeah, definitely echoing all of that, it is just sort of outstanding the... Especially because so many things are, are informal. Like, you know, I, I think I'm used to, you know, like maybe big signs that are critical to the flow of the narrative, getting that kind of subtitle, but to have even sort of incidental graffiti on on a mech, you can, of course that is somewhat important to the narrative, but you can, you can understand that, you know, someone someone trashed your mech with graffiti. Like, <laughs> you know, you could always pick that up without the message actually being stated uh, or, or, or translated, I should say. Uh, but, you know, they, they did it, you know? Absolutely. And I think in, in, like,
2: the case of the graffiti, like, you can get, like, the general gist of it. But um, when it's actually translated, it's like, oh, wow, that's yeah. that's particularly cruel. Children like, are cruel,
0: like, it turns out. Cr-
2: yeah, like, um, just just incredibly abrasive things, like, um, that you don't really... Because, it, like, it's kind of goofy when you have that level of abstraction or, like, they, they draw... A pair of boobs on your uh, your RX unit, um, but then when you see like the actual content, uh, it's like, oh wow! Ugh.
0: Yeah, there's one that's. I, I actually, I think someone was saying that the um, even like the particularly vulgar one that was painted on the or, or written on the on the crotch was like even still slightly toned down from like mm-hmm. what right. might arguably be a more literal translation. So that's quite that's quite something. Uh, but you know that's uh, that's that's how kids. Kids are like that, and you know. Again, thankfully, <laughs> we now have the uh, we have this this release, um, which will uh, you know be around for for a while. I guess. I mean, it seems like it's been a commercially successful release as far as discotech goes. It was, I guess, uh, there. Were, I saw a number of posts about it about it selling. So yeah, hopefully, it means it'll be around there and available for, for you know for, for some time to come.
2: Yeah, I think they said it was like their second or third, like, like up there in terms of their highest selling releases. Period. Um, I think the still the overall king of that is Castle Cagliostro, obviously because mm. it's a Miyazaki joint. But sure. Um, but like, yeah, like it was topping the Amazon sales charts, not just the Right Stuff sales charts, which was crazy for this uh, ver- very '80s sort of uh, yeah. science fiction mecha OVA.
0: Yeah, like it's it's a big thing for us in this niche, but. You know, I wouldn't necessarily expect like a even like a general retro anime fan, like maybe they might know about it just because of like Ava proximity or something, but
2: Yeah, I have to imagine it's in part the Ava connection. Like like it has there's a lot of positive word of mouth about it, but I I, I have to mention I imagine it was in part just that like explosive response to this guy at Otakon Otacon last Mm.
0: year. Oh yeah. Cool. Well let's go ahead. Let's let's start rolling into it. Uh, this is gonna be discussion on Gumbuster episode 3 uh, first love star first sortie I'm saying star out loud you know it's like literally a, a full-size star character and uh, I, I don't know I appreciate that I appreciate uh, cute cute episode titles the opening speaking of cute and episodes in episode 3 the opening of episode 3 is uh, unique and it is very cosme focused uh, there is juxtaposed two things one of those is a text crawl comprising scientific information which includes various things both real and made up uh then this this scientific information is uh we learn at the end of the crawl is from a high school science paper that was presented by kazumi and then that is juxtaposed with two an audio feed of a a party which i believe is the um the excelion launch party where Kazumi and coach Oda are performing a duet, a karaoke duet, uh, which, you know, the, it's not a subtle duet. (laughs) It's very, very straightforward in terms of, uh, the messaging of the duet. Um, and so there's, you know, there's two parts of this. I actually, so I was, one thing I was curious about, I, so I have an electrical engineering background, which I had the misfortune to study, uh, physics and other things at the undergraduate level. And so you, the, when I first had watched this a few years back, um, you know, I, I did recognize some of the things discussed, you know, the Planck constant, stuff like that. Uh, I went and searched more of these uh, terms that appear in the paper. And basically um, anything that is uh, like, anything that's like, doesn't have the word ether in it is like a real thing. Uh, so yeah, you know, the weinberg Salam theory is real. It refers to uh, two of the four kind of fundamental interactions, uh, you know, of, of, like atoms. Uh, there was a Nobel Prize award for that in 1977. Quantum chromodynamics is real, <laughs> which I really <laughs> thought that wouldn't be real, uh, but it involves strong interactions, so it's another type of interaction between particles. Uh, but anything involving ether is fake. And uh, you, I think even when even someone who doesn't have a scientific background will see the 1995 date, on a paper and say, ah, yes, this one would have been fake. This one was invented by a writer. Um, mostly I bring all this up because I'm just kind of surprised at how, um, how well they wield the jargon in this little bit bit. Like, I don't know if this is Yamaga who did this or like who brought in this, um, you know, cause I searched all this on Wikipedia, but if you were doing this in, you know, in the late eighties, based on 10 year old science, that's like a much bigger lift to have all that information available, like, to go to your library and, and put that all together, like, it's much harder than what I'm doing, looking it up. Um, so I'm kind of impressed <laughs> at the level of, like, jargon.
1: Oh, I feel the same way. Um, so I – every other watch that I've had was – like, I just watched it solo, and I just kind of thought it was all just, like, like – Made up. I just thought it was all made up. Mm -hmm. Um, And now, like, this was the first, uh, this this Blu-ray viewing is the first time I ever watched it with somebody. And my my partner has a degree in engineering and physics. And he was was really excited by the show. And he just kept going, what, 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 (laughs) during this, like, this particular part (laughs) of the scene. He said, like, he said it was a potpourri of real science and
0: bullshit. Yes, that's right.
1: And he loved it, like it was. But it was just one of those things where I was like, I didn't even realize that like some of it was like based in like real, like real hard science, and that was really cool to realize.
0: And what's even funnier is that by invoking ether, so ether is itself ether. I would consider sort of analogous to the usage of alchemy, which is to say there was a period of history where people tried to make up real theories about things and called them ether or call them alchemy um ether honestly was serious scientific terminology relatively more recently and i say relatively i mean like in the early 20th century you could probably find science textbooks that talk about ether and ether fell out of favor not so much because it was like disproven but just because scientists got better at um describing abstract relationships between things the forces and and things like that it was just sort of a situation like oh we actually understand atoms and electrons and whatnot we don't need to use this terminology so it became effectively an antiquated word and so you know even the even the, the 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 pseudoscience um or the i guess the speculative science is itself drawing on terminology that has been used in you know in scientific literature of the past But of course, that's not the only thing that's going on here is, you know, we have all this science jargon, this text crawl, and that's all you see on screen as well. You don't see, uh, you know, any, any imagery associated with the audio track, and the audio track is this duet. Uh, you know, they're talking about drinking. They're talking about you know assigning blame, being in each other's arms, and it is being sung by by Kasim and Ota. And you know, credit where credit is due. The you know Bradley Gareth, uh, the, the voice for Coach, and um, I forget the name. Is it Steinberg or who's um for for um, Amino?
1: Not sure.
2: yeah Melissa Sternenberg.
1: Sternenberg.
0: Sternenberg. That's it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they they both do outstanding work.
2: Yeah, I think that um, that bit carries through. It's also a lot easier to parse uh, in the dub when you're not, uh, your eyes aren't jockeying between two yeah. different sets of subtitles, um, uh, which which I very much appreciated because that w- that one that bit was always kind of hard for me to get um, exactly what was going on unless I just like focused on one and then rewound it and focused on the other.
0: Yeah, it really does require that. You, you, you pause if you're watching two competing sets of subtitles
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Sheena did you have a point that you were about to start there
1: well I was actually curious because like I know that that song's like a real song like that's like a real like Inca s- song um so like I wonder like if they had to get the rights for that like how that worked
0: oh that's an interesting question huh. yeah, it, was just
1: a, it was just a popular love song in the 80s to sing along to but I don't I don't know yeah no idea how that works
0: presume? yeah i mean because of course Gumbuster itself is sort of it i mean on, you know that's an interesting question too because there remains a ton of um like brand <laughs> there's a ton of <laughs> trademarks in there that that can't possibly be licensed um nope. but you uh, you know, there's so much, how much, you know, how many times do you see Coca-Cola or Pepsi on the same table and uh, you know, how do they, how does that get, a, get away with it? I, I actually do wonder like if, if, you know, if there is like a grandfather rule there cause they just, they got away with it or if it's, you know, someone, situ- I mean, there is a, such a thing as what they would call, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to use a specific legal phrase and anyone listening, I want you to understand that you are not allowed to turn around and use this phrase as justification for anything that you do. I'm begging you. There is such a thing as trademark fair use, which is when you are, you know, talking about a trademark in the context of like, oh yeah, you know, like in the story, he drank a Coca-Cola or something. But how exactly that interacts with fiction is I'm I'm not a trademark scholar. Um, In fact, I infamously got a terrible grade in a trademark class once. Uh, so I, you know, how exactly that, that shakes out. I'm surprised, you know, that this isn't like a situation with, um, cause there's some really high profile examples of more recent works that have had the brands scrubbed out of them. Uh, code mm. DS, death stranding, you know, it happens all the time. Yeah, I believe even
2: um, Dirty Pair—they had to, for the Blu-ray release—they mm. had to scrub out some material, um, which is you know sort of contemporary, slightly before Gunbuster. Um, I I'm unsure if it's maybe just something where it's placed in the background enough that it's a non-issue. Because mm. I believe Megazone Megazone two three also uses a lot of actual name brands. Um, I, I think particularly uh, what's kind of head scratching about it is just because Japanese. Um, uh, copyright trademark law is notoriously a lot more strict uh than uh um, yeah. American like uh intellectual property kind of stuff. So um I I don't know, uh, but I'm I'm glad that they didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to do any futzing or like weird like mosaicing of yeah. <laughs> of things. Um uh I'm glad that the only the only thing we lost was uh kind of knockoff of
0: uh chariots of fire. because <laughs> uh, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah. Oh goodness! I always what what a what a perfect what decision. A perfect. I always appreciate that when I hear about like like you know music tracks with the USCL you know, numbers filed off kind of thing. There's just something very very pleasing about that.
2: I mean, and you get a bit of that in here too. Uh, yeah. With, like, like sort of the 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 theme, the Gunbuster like march, I guess, is our uh, one of the battle themes. Is functionally just Mars, which I mean, obviously would have been in the public domain. But like the, the Mars from Holst's Planet yeah. Suite, yeah. Um, which I mean, you know, uh, Williams did the same thing in, right. in Star's War. Um, it's a good track. It's worth. It's a good thing.
0: track. It brings the war. That's what they always say. My oh, God, I was actually just listening on, uh, in the in the radio. Uh, I listen to classical radio all the time because I'm that kind of nerd. And uh, they were, actually they were doing a broadcast of uh, the planets today while I was driving around. So that was uh, I was just just had that on my mind. Uh, the the and I, you're right to bring up that is um, that's almost like one of those things that's sort of a part of a, a musical literacy to invoke mm-hmm. the bum 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 bum. You know that that very you know, literally martial. Uh, sort of uh, you know background on, on the march to war. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's let's move beyond the uh, the op. Actually, you know, I, I guess I could real quick. Do either of you have a uh, an op take? I think I'm more uh, last. I think on the first episode that we record on Gunbuster, I said I wish it was the Pat Labor OVA op. And I'm thinking I'm coming around to it because I'm noticing that I'm getting the uh, the high 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 stuck in my head a lot. Um, so that's always a good sign that I'm coming around to it. Do you how, do either of you have strong feelings about the OP?
1: I, I love the energy of it. It's, it's incredibly 80s and that's what I'm looking for.
2: Yeah, I think um, listening to it the, uh, this time around, it, it did catch me off guard because I've, I've played a decent amount of super robot wars like in the time since I've revisited it. Um, and so for me, like just I sort of mentally file away, Ah, yes, the Gunbuster song, fly high. Uh, that's, that's what I kind of consider. So it's, it was a bit like, oh wait, yeah, this is the actual opening. I'm not sure how I feel about this. Um, <laughs> and, and then I caught myself today humming, um, active heart to myself and I'm like, oh no, it's good. Oh, damn it. <laughs> um, I'm wrong again. Uh, no, I, I, I quite like it. It, uh, grew on me, uh, throughout this last revisit.
0: Yeah, no, that's always, I, I get the sense by the end of this, i am be like, no, actually this is great. I, and this is, I'm often this way with, with OPs where, uh, you know, I'll be like, oh, this is, this is just fine. And then by the end of it, I'll be like, actually slash by Yama rules and you're all wrong, you know, or something like that. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the only time I ever listened to an OP and I said, I said, this is fantastic on the first go was like, I don't know, colors by flow. <laughs> yeah. Hard, hard to resist that one.
2: Yeah, and I I think the other thing that is fun about it is just sort of the tonal dissonance often between whatever the cold open of the episode is uh, and this incredibly peppy sort of uh, pop song. Uh, The actual visuals in it are pretty good, but I think uh, you mentioned last episode that they kind of hew to the tone of that very first episode and never really leave it, Um, (laughs) uh, which is, again, also uh, weirdly appealing in its own way. I like when the openings are kind of dissonant from the, the body of the text
0: yeah, I think that I think that's something that's a that's an effect of Gunbuster, both for the the OP and the ED, that they those get further, like those stay fixed in time, while Noriko and you know and and sort of the narrative are becoming uh, you know untethered from time, mm-hmm. and you know the effect becomes greater and greater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's get into into the meat of it then, Noriko. Uh, who is thinking about Himiko, who's far away back on the earth? Noriko is describing her experiences aboard the Excalion, where the sun is, you know, far away, it's just another star, and the ship is traveling so fast through the ether flow that it feels like an ordinary sailing ship on the ocean because of how the ship uh, can, you know, rock back and forth, experience turbulence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, I, you know this feels like the the high high water mark you might say of missing out for steven who is of course a, a master and commander stan as well as a fan of other <laughs> nautical works that i have not read um how do you feel about the idea of a spaceship uh you know, rocking in like a like a sailing ship would
2: uh i think for me uh like because they they typically uh at least once throughout the series they use the term like uh, the sea of stars Mm -hmm. um which which for me it's just sort of evoking um in particular like because there's a lot of you know nautical comparisons to uh space travel in early science fiction and that sort of thing uh but uh liji matsumoto works um of course Mm. uh ano in particular was a a big fan of the um uh, of captain harlock which uh you know heavily uses that with space pirate material i think he um there's a note on one of the in daikon uh the daikon 4 opening animation um for when they have the super macross uh where the yamato and the arcadia are each of the arms there's a note that specifically says ano draws the arcadia <laughs> um on it um which is very fun uh so i think it's very much um despite sort of the the hard sf uh trappings of of some of this it's trying to evoke uh that um, more space opera quality which is good i like it i like space opera and hard sf both are cool
1: i i agree i i'm fond of both and i think like especially like that's that scene where like noriko is just kind of like i guess reflecting on like her experiences in space so far like it's very it's very beautiful I think like her explanation of just like the sea of stars the sea of space is very very lovely um while I'm not sure if um a spaceship would actually shake like that in at a speed that they were going I would assume so but I'm not I'm not sure it did somehow like feel like more realistic to me like just the fact that it's just yeah they have this like really high technology but you can't con- like, it's so, you're going so fast. You can't control, like, some things. Like, of course you're going to have to deal deal with some um, turbulence.
0: Yeah, I, when I think of, you know, th- these... Because I, I feel like what we're getting at here is this sort of, like, this intersection of, like, the romance of the sea versus the consequences of, of hard sci-fi. And I, I think this, uh, you know, this idea of um, using nautical terms becomes uh, very very useful because you know how how else would you would you come to understand it It's a language that's known, and that's why you know we, I think it's being fixed in these terms. Even as maybe like some things don't exactly track uh, enough of it works that you know you can like all right, well, this is like this other human experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah. Now that I think about it, too, like it the concept of time like the time dilation like very very much like fascinates me but it's also like it it does kind of remind me like i've been listening to a lot of like podcasts and reading a lot about like shipwrecks and like kind of like old timey like voyages um and about how much time passed like during these um where like you're going for months or years at a time without going back home usually years at a time without going back home and i definitely see a parallel there <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, I think that's uh, I I think that's going to be an interesting thing. I already I know like me and I think um you know Rex also in a previous episode were like yeah episode five is going to get us it's going to get us good <laughs> and you know like a major part of that is like as much as of course everyone talks about the ending you know the experience of Noriko talking to Kimiko in episode five I think is something that a lot of people relate to because it really captures that sense of like you were gone on a voyage for years and you came back and everything's different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, uh, as previously mentioned, uh, the forever war, uh, does, does that, um, like when they have sh- their initial shore leave, um, it's very effective, especially, um, I think enhancing that through the juxtaposition of, you know, it only being a week or a few months for you and it being, you know, several decades. Um, for those around you uh speaking of kimiko and this opening i do like that it r- reminds us that kimiko exists um I, I think it's good to kind of show young kimiko uh sort of lounging around doing you know b- normal everyday teenagery things uh while noriko is in space uh to to sort of prime us uh for seeing her again uh but uh considerably older mm-hmm. um i just feel like a, as a narrative thing um uh, like sort of setting up the eventual payoff i think it's good to uh have uh Noriko reaching out to her specifically.
0: Yeah, there's there's so much good good setup work in terms of of things uh that will, you know, <laughs> that will come back to hurt us later. Uh and certainly the the continued reminder of of Kimiko's is, is one of those. On the bridge, uh the captain orders the ship to enter warp speed upon learning that the conditions for warp speed are uh, appropriate. It is time it is time to proceed. After that little interlude, Noriko Noriko continues her narration where she explains that when they enter warp, non-essential personnel remain on standby in their quarters. And now of course, what atmosphere does this situation cultivate but a a perfect time for uh telling ghost stories because apparently when they're when they're in warp, I guess they they turn all the lights low. Um, which doesn't really seem like standby. It seems the vibe is more nap time than standby during warp. But you know that's okay. And of course, you know that opportunity when you have a number of teenagers in their quarters, and it's spooky. That's a perfect opportunity for ghost stories. And and Young is telling a ghost story. Noriko is freaking out. Um, this is just a, like another example of. What feels like just like another weird mashup track in in Gunbuster, which is this combination of the the hard sci fi with the like summer camp ghost story.
2: Yeah, I think that's um, completely correct. I think uh, speaking to the you know uh, the previous guests have mentioned uh, the Aim for the Ace connection is um, Aim for the Ace, the television series, um, the original television series rather from uh, uh, 1972 uh, was it ends by them going to a tennis camp, of all things. Um, so the summer camp connection, you know, even reaches to that initial uh, inspiration in its way. Um, and particularly of uh, the the lead character, um, Oka in Aim for the Ace leave, uh, leaves the camp briefly and beats a boy, um, or beats up with a boy who she's had a crush on throughout the series. Um, so they're sort of reflecting that, uh, sort of meet cute mm. in aim for the Ace uh, but again very much making it its own as uh, uh, Gunbuster is one to do
0: so now you, you, you've watched Aim for the Ace uh, yes okay.
2: I love uh, Aim for the Ace and the movie and all the, all the other material it's, it's Osamu Dezaki uh, so I'm legally obligated
0: What what's the, what's the meme the Dezaki meme is like some would say it's his masterpiece is that yeah yeah you could say that about basically right episode. about any of his works yeah yeah sheena do you have any familiarity with aim for these
1: i don't i'm i'm definitely familiar with Dezaki, but no i i I haven't watched it yet it's on my list
0: okay yeah no i mean everything i've heard at this point is that you know it is outstanding and influential and, and still worth watching
2: no, yeah, like, uh, if you want to see a, f- a show that basically codifies the visual language of shoujo anime, um, like, particularly its use of, like, watercolor backgrounds, um, and just, just gorgeous, it, it's astonishing how uh, Dezuki is, is, with fewer drawings, able to ring more, uh, and, you know, for lower stakes, like, it's tennis versus world-ending kind of conflict, uh, he's able to ring a lot more melodrama out of tennis, I think, than even Ano and crew are able to... Uh, do with gunbuster uh which is is incredible just in terms of like discussing like framing of uh, of the scenario everything is so heightened in aim for the ace um okay. that, it, that it really sells you on it
1: the, the melodrama definitely makes sense because um, didn't didn't he uh direct dear brother like A?
2: Yeah, yeah, Dear Brother. Dear Brother reflects a lot of... um, I I would say Dear Brother... For me, Dear Brother has always felt more related to Aim for the Ace, even, than um, Mm -hmm. uh, Rosa Versailles, the other Ikeda adaptation he did. Um, Just because there's a lot of similarities in the text, in terms of, you know, it's about a high schooler, ostensibly, uh, dealing with a bunch of very mean girls. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm sold. Yeah, no, it's very, very good.
0: Dear Brother is the one that the... uh the man the man in the brown jacket you on <laughs> meme comes from yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> i'm sorry I'm, I'm, I'm my brain is internet poison so <laughs> no
2: no no absolutely i just oh, got me I, I was not
0: expecting that bless you <laughs> uh, sorry this is just how this is this is me you know trying to trying to experience more works and you know i recently had the experience i mean this is a this is a weird tangent i recently played a dynasty warriors game for the first time after having read romance of the three kingdoms and it hits a lot different now you know um so it's it's always good to uh you know to go and experience important works and then you know maybe come back to some of those other things
2: yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, that was—I um, didn't really mention it in the opening—but revisiting uh, Gunbuster after having seen uh, Aim for the Ace uh, is is a very rewarding sort of thing because you can kind of uh, do the do the Leo point at the screen, and it's like, oh, it's that thing—it's the dealie from the movie and the show.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that was even that was even uh, Coop's like sort of recommended watch order was like watch Gunbuster, then watch Aim for the Ace, then watch Gunbuster again.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah I know absolutely I think it, it also it has that same kind of quality as um, even going back to the, the Blue Blazes app or, or like the Daikon mm. animations uh, where it's like every time you uh, return to it it's fun to see like like what connections you could make it's like oh wait the RX7's RX, uh, RX 7s kind of look like uh, Space Knight Techaman I didn't notice that now I do I, I'm more literate <laughs> in media
1: <laughs> yes
0: literacy achieved <laughs> My, my literacy achievements, much like steam achievements. <laughs> Speaking of, of dares, uh, of course, what, what better to follow up a ghost story than a classic dare? On a dare, uh, Noriko has to leave the quarters during warp to place a mark- marker elsewhere on the ship. Of course, this is this is against the rules. She's supposed to be remaining on standby in the quarters. Uh, she's walking. She walks past uh, some spooky trees and the exposed brains of partially disassembled RX units and where she runs into a ghost. No, she runs into another pilot who is also on effectively the same dare. Uh, while he puts up her marker, Coach Oda catches both of them and subsequently punishes them with Laser cannon lens cleaning duty. I this is this is such a good spooky sequence. I, I think there's like two things I want to point out here. One is just like plants on spaceships is um, like a really good like subgenre of sci-fi thing that I always enjoy seeing. Uh, the Expanse had a lot of really good examples of this of, of plants on on spaceships. I always love seeing that kind of thing. And then the other thing I would say is the, is the disassembled RX mechs. I think the having them in this context, it's like the kind of like, Oh, it looks like a brain. You know, there's the, it makes you think of the, the, um, the quote of, you know, we, we could have made them look like anything, but we made them look like glass. And this is true. Even, even underneath the skin, it's not even just arms and legs and torso and head. It looks like they have a brain and, you know, and this will come back later, in the much more dramatic situation of the RX units with the battle damage, where you know they have they have the wounds, but here it's just oh, isn't that spooky that they that they look like us even when disassembled?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, regarding the sequence, I, I do like that it kind of plays preamble to the the larger ramifications of of Norco's inability to move forward when when scared. Um, like it really sets the stage for the the final uh, the battle of this episode um, in a fun way, uh, while also being just kind of a unique uh, set piece, playing on the strengths and um, more unique, I guess, qualities of uh, this sort of high school high schooler mecha pilots uh, in uh, transplanted into hard SF hard military SF material.
0: Do we is. Are the boys also supposed to be 15? I
2: think, I think they're so they're supposed to be around the same age. Okay. My, my under th- there's probably an age range from mm-hmm. like 15 to 17. I would imagine because that's sort of, um, consistent with, um, uh, aim for the ace where it's first year, second years, third years. Um, and they, they do that with the subdivision of the, the mecha colors too. Um, but they're supposed to be in the same age range, but they, they do look kind of older, I think, um.
1: Yeah, I know Cosme is like at least supposed to be a year older, if not two years older than than Nariko. So, like, yeah, I think it's like set like in that kind of like high school age range.
0: Yeah, I, I'm gonna put a pin in this age thought for a second here because I I want to get to the uh, the because there's some relevant <laughs> I think there's some relevant relevant information on this discussion in in the next part of of the episode which is that, you know, they are then immediately out on, on, you know, the discipline duty, cleaning the lenses. Uh, But Noriko isn't really helping. She's uh, very busy uh, staring at the cosmos in wonder while uh, her as of yet unnamed, or I mean, at this time, unnamed companion is cleaning the lenses. And he seems less impressed by it. He seems uh, sort of uh, to think that like, oh, hey, you know, like this is just, you know, it's just, oh a nebula that's just a dying star yeah that's that's nothing interesting he's not really particularly imp- impressed with the, the wonder of it and even but like you know and that is directly contrasted with the uh, captain toshiro who is waxing nostalgic about his first voyage among the stars and clearly he's you know he very much feels the uh you know the call of the sea and has some romantic feelings about that compared to his officers. so you get this um so you get this contrast here, where you have some people, I guess, uh, uh, you know, the officers, and uh, I'm gonna, I'm Torn. The boy's name is Torn. Um, you know that they, they are have these more dispassionate views, whereas the Captain Noriko are really kind of taken with the wonder of it. Um, I'm gonna do a thing I don't do very often here, and, and which which is invoke poetry. It reminds me of like a, I think it was a Walt Whitman poem that gets gets taught in high school. Uh, when I heard the learned astronomer which um, I thought was, I, I did not like that poem as a high schooler because um, I, I I think science can be pretty cool too. I think the charts and figures that uh, the narr- the I guess the narrator of the Walt Whitman poem, uh, those can be pretty interesting too. And in a way that does, you know, enhance or, or you know, increase uh, wonder and all that things. Um, so, I you know, <laughs> obviously I didn't have to be adversarial with Walt Whitman. It's not necessary, but. Uh, you know, just the thought that,
1: that comment does make me wish that Steven was on.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. That is a, a master and commander and it's PMC deploying a Walt Whitman mm-hmm. reference. Very, very much, a uh, missed opportunity. Um, no, uh regarding this scene, uh I had well I, I guess I have two comments now, which is um I, I suppose the idea is that uh Torin is um the same age. It might be a situation like young where he's just been in space more okay. um to uh, like it's not never explicitly stated, but I get you can one can do the work for the text, I guess, and presume that uh, maybe people have weird hairdos in space. Uh, that's kind of a, a favorite trope of mine because uh, he's he's a very funny hairdo, even compared to his peers uh, who we see later. Um, and also, uh, no, not a terribly substantive comment, uh, but I do love the dubs' choice um, of when Norco is annoyed with how uh, much of a bummer. He's being, uh, she says specifically, "What crawled up your butt?" Uh, right before Torin comments on his back hurting. Um, I don't know why. I just find that particularly amusing. Is um, one line leading into the other? Because the original Japanese line isn't any, anything like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the back hurting thing really makes me like, like you know, like oh, that's relatable for me as a thirty year old. You know, <laughs> like how old are you, Torin? What are you doing out here? uh yeah that's that's part of like th- that was the comment i was referring to specifically when i said maybe we should come back to the age discussion just because having Turn be this sort of uh veteran character and um and uh be this veteran character talk about his back hurting you know these are like middle-aged man activities
1: oh well it's it's also like just feels to me that like noriko is like the most um like comes across as the the youngest emotionally than all of the other like teens teen characters in the show um so yes like he does he does appear, appear older in that sense but also like noriko does seem very immature just in general
0: and of course i think a good counterpoint that i would present to myself is that you know in this sequence we are shown that maybe the oldest looking character shares that sense of wonder and awe, And so maybe that really, you know, know, we shouldn't be too harsh on on Noriko. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I think it's good with, with playing up with one's expectations. Uh, It also might be like, again, doing, doing the lifting for the text. It could just be that um, doing that particular work in a space suit bent over is, is more annoying um, or can cause more strain or like, as we were discussing the, the effects of gravity on one's body in the previous episode, um, maybe, maybe there's something there, uh, too. Uh, maybe, maybe his twins are sagging.
0: You know, you, you just made me start thinking of like, I wonder, so his, the, the top of his haircut isn't quite <laughs> that flat. But um, the thing that I, w- I would I would say is that he almost like almost is sort of a guile kind of haircut, but again, it's not quite totally mm-hmm. flat on top. But I mean, if that were if there was a relationship there, it would be that Gumbuster inspi- inspired the Street Fighter character design, since Gumbuster would predate it.
2: All right, this is gonna be a weird pull, okay. uh, but very specifically, um, the generic grunt soldier in XCOM UFO Defense, the original PC game, has that kind of like wilting haircut. Uh, that's like like not quite as flat as Giles. Um, like that that is actually who uh, uh, Torin looks like. And you just you just hit me with that uh, by mentioning that. Yeah, no, he he absolutely um, looks like. Uh,
0: wha- Oh, I think I, I think I know. Wait a second! Wait a second! I, oh, wait, I, I think I got. It. Is it like like this kind of guy here? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay.
2: Yeah, that is that is Smith Torin.
0: That is there. We go. <laughs> we found him, folks. We're getting some deep cuts here. We we got XCOM. We got Walt Whitman. Putting it all together. Meanwhile, an alien object, so at, while this uh, lens cleaning is going on, an alien object makes a near pass on the Excelsior, and the captain orders pursuit. a montage of the fleet arming and assembling ensues. Damn, they're good at these montages. Like holy crap. the uh, I mean, there are engines with like pistons, you know, pulsing in. Uh, fighters are being like assembled on the fly. like wings are being attached. Um, you know, various... The interior of the bridge of the Accelion, um has, like, such a weird vibe. Like, on one hand, it's, like, a number of people doing work in, in a technical setting, but, like, it often has, like, sort of, like, a, like a game show vibe or, like, a telethon sort of vibe, like an old-fashioned, you know, banks with people at phones uh, sort of vibe. It's just such a strange... I, I can never settle on what my feelings are about the Bridge of the Excelion.
1: It's wild looking. It's one of the coolest things I've ever seen, but it also looks like the middle of like a Wall Street office. <laughs> like it just like with like that like kind of ticker going on. Um and I'll still never get over the fact that they're just eating sushi in the middle of the bridge. Yeah
2: Uh maybe yeah, maybe they keep more than just dolphins uh in for the systems uh whatever system i can't remember what that was (laughs) uh, regarding gravity like dolphins for navigational systems or something um that star trek borrowed um but No, I think there is something really unique. I think it does a good job of of setting up the progression of technology um, that we're going to see when we jump forward um, in the succeeding episodes, Um, having this being, in many ways, you know, like uh, the the bridge in particular, kind of resembling a more traditional Japanese office space in a lot of ways of the day with like kind of chunky CRT displays and that sort of thing on top of, you know, your usual SF bric-a-brac moving on to, you know, episode six where, where all the chairs have horns on them and look like something straight out of like uh, like space battleship yamato um or something and it's all all like like the apple future as um created by leader destler uh <laughs> but uh I, I really like the design here and the get, getting ready scene because um, uh or the montage rather <laughs> um uh because ano did the storyboards for all six episodes um Uh, It very much reflects uh, in particular because he worked on um, SDF Macross episode 27, which also has a very excellent sort of montage of all the mechs getting ready um, and moving forward. But uh, this one in particular kind of reminds me a bit of uh, Do You Remember Love, Uh, the launch sequence uh, sort of for the first skirmish towards the uh, start of that film. Um, It very much evokes that. um, So it's it's fun to see him sort of revisiting that because he's very good at it, uh, as has been mentioned.
0: Yeah. So Noriko, at this point, you know, the, the ship is getting ready for war, but Noriko is busy with her own personal struggle, which is that she is continuing to study the, you know, the operation of the RX machines and how to become an operator of mechs herself. Uh, she's doing so while riding the, uh, the tram, the, the, the tram that moves people around the interior of the Accelion. Uh, lo- love a good inter- spa- in- intra-spaceship tram system. Uh, And the boy uh, who is once again there torn uh, begins to tease her about spending this time doing learning that, you know, he's really more of an experience guy that jamming all that book knowledge into your brain. Isn't really useful for, for when you're out in the field. Uh, And then, you know, at the same time, uh, Noriko is also not really paying attention to what's going on around her when she is studying in the girl's locker room, uh, where there is a lot of very interesting (laughs) gossip um and but kazumi notices that noriko is studying um i want to take a moment here just to uh continue to compliment uh the dub especially for young uh <laughs> young's delivery of this whole bit about like oh she was i i heard she was hitting her her head on the on the headboard i would <laughs> i was laughing so hard and i was like oh damn <laughs> So that was definitely uh, c- continues to be, uh, you know, a real locker room atmosphere uh, in that, in that area. Um, it's it just for me though. I, I do want to double back real quick to the, uh, the bit on the tram, because it is interesting that Torrin has this, um, I guess I would call like a, like a, like a, a workman sort of attitude that, you know, he isn't, he is not impressed by the majesty of the cosmos. Um, but it isn't necessarily because he has memorized everything. I mean, he does demonstrate some book learning. He does say that, uh, you know, that a nebula was previously a star, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, he does have some of that knowledge, but at the same time, you know, he, he doesn't feel that it is worth much when it comes to piloting a mech. Absolutely,
2: yeah, just sort of that War um, Workland-like uh, approach uh, to things. Um, I think it's, it's ultimately to, to the point of teaching Noriko a lesson um, uh, regarding uh, sort of something that uh, she's kind of kind of continuously uh, learned, which is uh, book learning will get you uh, so only so far uh, to, to really aim for the top. Uh, you've got to do so with hard work
0: and guts, um, and that's all you really need. Mhm. Every every time I hear aim for the top, I hear that that Bradley Gareth, you really got to aim for the top, gumbuster Noriko. <laughs> funniest
2: one. thing in the world. <laughs> I rewatched the Aim for the Ace movie and it literally ends with the coach um writing in his in a letter for uh, Oka Oka aim for the top exclamation point exclamation point um (laughs) which is so funny to me because it's like he did it and he told he told her to do the thing a gunbuster didn't have the gall to just have him say it outright just just um said it out loud but i thought that was very funny that the tennis anime uh, did that uh, for some reason (laughs) Um, but yeah, no that that bit uh, that uh, sound clip uh, is extremely good and would be very fitting with the uh, the science lesson. Coach. Oh yeah,
0: a hundred percent. Those science lessons are so funny. <laughs>
2: this this episode has some really good ones too. Or the the aftermath of this episode, I really like the 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 coach. There's like one frame of him taking off his um uh his. Faux Kazoo- uh, uh, eh, Kazumi, <laughs> faux Cosmi skin, um, and so it's just a, a Cosmi skin suit um, coming off of his chibi body. Uh, it's really really fun. I need to get a screen grab of that at some point, but um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, they're very, they're very delightful, and it feels like um, the the bit like people always talk about like hard science fiction is uh, like a Trojan horse horse for like uh, majors in X Y Z science field to smuggle their thesis yeah. into. Um, I feel like, like the science lessons are like the most fun version of that, like the mm-hmm. best possible way of doing that. Um, Cause they're just all fun. They're all delightful, but also you're, you're learning about fakey, fake science. And sometimes maybe a little bit of real science, maybe just a mm-hmm. tiny bit.
0: Speaking of real science, um, there is a, there is a little bit of real science here uh, because I, I was like, Okay, so there's a, there's a thing here. They after that, uh, they're they're doing this pursuit sequence, but they're because they are on their way to leave sixty four. The Excellion fleet was on its way to leave sixty four. They started pursuing as they are passing leaf sixty four. It is discovered that what should be a small gold star like the Earth's sun. Has actually, in the span of just ten years, become a red giant—something that should take much, much, much longer—and uh, and so this prompted me to do do a quick search for life cycle of a star. And yeah, it seems like you know at some point, and I think I kind of knew this—that you know, some billions of years in the future, that the sun eventually would become a red giant before becoming a, a planetary nebula. And of course we already, you know, know from previously that, uh, Torin told us that, you know, the nebulas were previously stars. Uh, I don't know what the time cycle that is. Cause I, I, mean, that's sort of the, you know, that's another interesting bit of, uh, time, which is to say that the threat of the enemy in gunbuster is that the, the I guess the, the future humanity thought they had might not actually be that far of a, much of a runway, if of course you know the sun rapidly turns into a red giant in 10 years then earth probably isn't going to be so well it will be hot uh but it will not be hot in the desirable way (laughs) but yeah i don't think i ever studied astrophysics so i was again i I was an electrical engineer um so i was mostly studying things on the on the smaller side so all this all this astrophysics stuff is uh is completely new to me
1: yeah, I've been. I like. I've been looking at like the, the the graphic that like you you shared with me and Ethan. and I'm just like, yeah. I'm just. I'm not very familiar like with with the life cycle of a star, but also like, yeah. I do have a feeling it takes a lot longer than ten years, or whatever, yeah, or however yeah. long they thought it was. Like, it's definitely like there's a there's something wrong here. But I'm not.
0: Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but it's like it's another one of those things, right? Where it just like clearly because. I imagine there could be like a certain a certain viewer who would be I guess who would who would feel like we haven't learned enough about the enemy at this point or are we fighting the enemy or anything like that but you know very quickly very effectively you know, the stakes are set like regardless of their motivation if they destroy the sun the earth is gone
1: <laughs> hmm.
2: yeah i think it's a really good um concept to make the the enemy seem like sufficiently big in terms of the scale of what it can do like the idea of something you know nesting in a sun like you know if, if we go into one of those that we just fucking die um uh but uh the the fact that they're nesting in and then subsisting off of like fu- functioning like as a in a parasitic capacity uh with uh these like the the most big thing uh like like single unit of thing that we can c- kind of conceive as a single thing almost um it, Definitely elevates them, um, and uh, there's something almost delightfully like pulp SF about um, the like describing a bad guy as like a sun eater. Um, yeah, like that. That's that yeah. absolutely sounds like the name of, of an Ultraman villain, like uh, X Y Z the Sun Eater. Um, <laughs> I think, um, yeah, it, it effectively sets the stakes, um, and that's what it needs to do. Uh, particularly juxtaposed with um, just. Uh, how little, and I mean that as a good thing we see of the enemy, um, in this, like we, we, it's very much sort of horror, horror movie setup where we just get, get brief flashes of them. And, and also it's a lot easier to draw brief flashes and, uh, like quick flashes of light when you're, when your studio is constantly on the verge of bankruptcy, uh, or something.
0: Yeah. It's, it's so effective. The, like the, just the, the way they're withheld, like, even when we've, and like the like, I guess you can almost do like a, um, a timeline of how the of how the enemy gets introduced in this, because you know they shoot from off screen in the very beginning when we're learning about the fate of the, of the Luxion. You see a corpse of one, um, but you know it's just like a small one, and now even like you see like you see the movement, but like when I say you see the movement, I, I literally mean it. <laughs> I mean you just. You identify movement; you do not actually see them.
2: Yeah, I think uh, too. This is um, the state of the enemies. The enemies kind of, sort of, because of their like, you know, crab-like, um, resentment, like, resemble uh, Heinlein's conceptualization of the um, the arachnids in Starship Troopers. But uh, the, the way they actually interact with with humanity kind of reflects the the Tarans from the Forever War, because um, like when. Noriko reacts with a shock at seeing just what the enemy looks like. Uh, that's, that's sort of a, the forever war thing, where they've never actually seen the alien taurins. Uh They just know that they blew up one of their ships at some point. Um, and that's sort of the instigation for the conflict. And, you know, s- similar in Gunbuster. It, it's worth noting that both texts were published in Japan around the same time. Uh, in the late 1970s, the Star- uh, Starship Troopers took a long while to get over.
0: Yeah, it is fun to think about that kind of I mean, of course, you know, at this point, certainly if you've been listening to our uh you know, to our uh Gunbuster history episodes, the the connection of not just, you know, visual media like like Star Wars and Star Trek, but also the connection of things like um, you know, Larry Niven, General Products, you know, being being a part of the history of Gynax is pretty well established. They were reading sci fi, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Kazumi approaches coach to tell him that she refuses. She will not be Noriko's partner because Noriko clearly is not ready for combat. Uh, You know, this following up on, on some of the, the observing from the locker room scene. Noriko, who happens to be practicing operation inside a nearby RX over here is the conversation and then accidentally reveals her presence Kazumi storms off, telling her that, you know, please don't misunderstand me. It is for your own good. And Noriko begins sobbing as coach encourages her to push forward.
1: Oh, no. The first time I watched this scene, I just thought, like, man, Kazumi's like, mean. And then, like, I realized, like, no, she's right. She's absolutely right. Noriko is not ready. And Noriko would not be a good partner for Kazumi at this point in the series but it definitely like i feel i feel noriko's pain in this scene i feel that like massive rejection even even though Kazumi is totally right
2: uh i i just wanted to speak more to the um uh the connection uh, again this is the other other sort of big aim for the ace connection in this is because um in uh in for the ace uh the uh, character ocho fujin uh the the madam butterfly senior figure um in that uh, is uh, it, it, very similar uh, to Kazumi in this uh, this way, where she's very kind, almost in in reflection, a little maybe condescending towards Noriko when she's just starting. Um, but uh, starts to be a bit more you know ag- aggressive when it becomes something that she's more directly entangled with. Um, uh, but in particular, uh, the the pair of them um, are going to need to play a doubles match of tennis. Um, <laughs> so the idea of um, struggling with one's partner uh, to get into sync with them and um, sort of understand one another uh, that pervades the rest of the text um, Like, uh, will become sort of a, a core issue moving forward um, is very much rooted in uh, doubles tennis.
0: Yeah, it is kind of interesting to think about the, uh, the aspect of this, which is like because we have not really seen the gunbuster at this point or like understand that it requires two pilots, this idea of like, wh- what exactly does it mean for the two of them to be working together? You know, in, in the combat of this episode, everyone is in their own individual RX unit. Uh, we don't really quite get to see anyone. Um, you know, maybe they're acting as a pair in separate RX units. So they certainly launches a pair. Uh, but you know, it's not quite, I guess like the the intensity of the the work together doesn't quite uh, jump out right away, or at least as it will eventually. Um, but but certainly to end up comparing it to doubles tennis probably makes some sense, especially because you know during the the sequence itself with with Noriko and Torin, uh, you know. So much of it is communicated in terms of controlling space and, you know, Norco is is not reacting to that, you know, the, the, the opportunity to control space.
2: Yeah, there's a there's a brief moment in, in the film in particular, where they're talking about tennis formations, uh, but um, uh, Reika, the the senior character specifically says, use formation A once um, Oka finally gets a handle on playing tennis. And there's something so science fiction about, uh, say, like using formation designations that way uh, in my brain um, that I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that is like a gunbuster thing because um, I, I revisited that film again today because it is a very good film. And I feel like it, it transplants very well uh, to this idea of, you know, kind of moving in sync, but also the particular pitfalls of, like, having to uh, overcompensate for your partner, uh, but in a way that might be uh, ultimately more destructive mm-hmm. to, um, uh, yeah. I just think there's a lot of a lot of interesting ideas to mine there um, in that uh, source material. And, again, make their own, uh, which they do quite effectively.
0: Noriko finds Torrance. Smith and tells him what's happened that she has been, uh, effectively dumped as a partner by Amino, uh, torn offers to, to team up with her. And also, finally, this was a revelation to me when I was making my notes for this episode. I was like, dog, you still haven't told her your name. And this is finally, <laughs> finally where, uh, or he, he shares his name and also, uh, just casually gives her his drink as well um which is, sets up a kind of like funny romantic moment but also um just like feels like a strange thing to do like you know i don't know in our in our era of infectious disease it would it would not be something that i would would encourage
2: yeah the the fact that he's been he's been sipping on it quite specifically um before passing it off yeah um like, like, it kind of feels almost like a, th- like a thing you do accidentally, um, <laughs> uh, like, um, <laughs> and then you just play it off
0: by, by walking yeah. away. Right, <laughs> um, It's like you mess uh, up and then you just hit the bricks. Like you just a pretend <laughs> it was intentional.
1: Yeah. But her like, Oh, secondhand kiss so is very cute.
0: Yeah. It's cute. Mm-hmm. It's cute.
2: Yeah, I think the double handles that well. They, they do some like cultural connotations. I feel like, um, like the average American viewer could get, you know, indirect kissing mm-hmm. um, just based on the term. But I feel like, like the concept of indirect, an indirect kiss through like drinks and that sort of thing is maybe it's something you see in more like anime stuff, uh, such as it were, um, and using that specific language um, as opposed to the, um, the more casual uh, tone uh, it takes with the dub, which I like.
0: Let's talk um, a little bit. Oh, oh go
2: ahead oh no go ahead i was gonna say let's talk a little bit
0: about uh about that dub about uh in particular Torrance. so i think you know in the previous episode and a little bit in this episode as well we have been complimentary of uh you know of, of young's uh you know russian accent and here we have a sort of southern a little bit i mean not it's not heavy but it is nevertheless a, a kind of southern accent which i think it's also like another one of those things that I feel makes this um, this new dub feel kind of uh, old in in a good way. Uh, I I'm just I'm a fan of it. I continue to enjoy the choices made for this dub.
2: Yeah, I think it's very good. It, it complements his sort of, like, blue-collar sensibilities, I think, mm-hmm. in a way that, like, an American audience would immediately recognize. Um, it just adds a bit more character to him, too, uh, in general, I think. Um, not that his Japanese performance is bad by any means. Um, it just makes him a bit more distinct. Um, and I, I like it. I, there's something about, yeah, the, the, the general performance here um, and just the pacing of his speech that makes him feel more, more like... Um, a calming kind of uh, like senpai sort of figure quote unquote um, uh, that, that works for me very well, especially in this dubbed version.
1: I agree. I'm very, I'm very fond of the dubbed version um, for Torin, but I also, I do, I do really like um, the the original as well. And I went down like a rabbit hole, like pretty recently, um, just looking at like the voice actors for Gunbuster and the, the voice actor for Torin um, is uh, Kazuki Yao. And his career is insane. Um, he was he was Judo and Double Double Zeta. He was the lead in Dan Kuga. He was Ninja Man and Cocky Ranger, and now he's Frankie in One Piece. And he's just Torin Smith in Gunbuster.
0: Wow! Yeah, it's he committed to the bit. <laughs>
2: Absolutely, and speaking of uh, of his name, uh, which we've we've just learned now, uh, it's probably worth mentioning uh, who he, who he's named after, which is the uh, m- uh, manga tra- most popularly known as a manga translator, amongst other things, uh, Torin Smith. Um, was a big name. He's uh, thanked in the um, Wings of Oniamis credits. He actually has a special thanks from Dynax, but um, he's uh, hugely responsible for bringing a lot of manga over to the uh, U.S. Uh, throughout the late 80s and 90s and very early 2000s. Like, basically all of Masamune Shiro's catalog, including Ghost in the Shell, but also personal favorites, like Black Magic. Um, uh, he did the translation for Venus Wars, too, the manga and the, the film. Uh, which is interesting, because um, he didn't do a whole lot of stuff with movies. Um, uh, oh My Goddess, just a lot of, like, staples of the day, like 3 by 3 Eyes, stuff that m- maybe people think about a bit less nowadays, um, but is still, you know, uh, kind of like essential text that were very popular in their day. Uh, and let's not forget uh, the most important, uh, which is uh, What's Michael? Uh, the classic anime about <laughs> a large or, an, or a classic manga, it also had an anime, I think, uh, but a classic manga about a large orange cat.
1: <laughs> now, Torn Smith is, like, a really fascinating figure. Like, just the thought of just this, um, like, Canadian man in, like, the early 80s, like, living with, like, a bunch of, like, the Gainax animators. I think it's just very sweet of them. Oh, my God, what's Michael Is most precious? <laughs> um, <laughs> absolutely precious. <laughs> but no it's it's really it's really sweet that they like paid 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 homage to him in Gunbuster.
2: yeah he's i I was i very briefly reading up on him and it's interesting to see him as sort of like a controversial figure too um because he was apparently quite resistant to the flipping uh like or not or, or i guess flopping is how they refer to it because it's the opposite of flipping but basically presenting manga in its original right to left reading order instead of left to right um because uh, his whole thing was, yeah, I think it was more that book distributors wouldn't sell it. it it's very much kind of like um, uh, Car- a Carl Masek sort of thing, where like he kind of had to do it for the times and maybe he clung on to it a bit too long. Um, and, and a lot of people got very mad at him for it, <laughs> uh, as, as anime fans can be one to do. Uh, but uh, it, I think more, like, more controversially was his... his Statement uh, that, uh, no, I'm not bringing any shoujo manga over with Studio Proteus, because I, I do not like shoujo manga, which is an, an odd thing to say, I think. Um, but, you know, some, some people can have weird takes every now and again. Um, he did a lot of cool stuff uh, and, and leaves a really positive legacy. Like, he, he, he wasn't just bringing over, you know, junkie, junk food shounen. He wasn't bringing over the, the MD Geist stuff. He br- brought over a lot of stuff that had more, like, broad appeal. Um, uh even if it was sort of uh, restricted to that seinen and shonen kind of space.
0: That's a neat note, because I I definitely, I know I had asked uh, maybe in the previous episode if, um, like, because I know of the propensity for Gainax to name characters after people, like especially people that are working at Gainax, when I see character names that are, that do not appear to me, uh, a person who lives in new jersey to be japanese names i wonder like well where do those names come from and uh, so to know about you know Toran smith is interesting uh I, I imagine young freud was not also a manga translator though <laughs> <laughs> no not to my
2: knowledge anyways um but but who knows, who knows? Uh, maybe there's maybe there's some uh you know eastern european uh equivalent of of uh torren smith that was uh, just had a very very comical name but was bringing over a lot of a lot of great titles back then i'll have to, to reach out to my contacts um but no he's he's also um did like writing stuff too and like the, the american dirty pair comics which are quite mm. good uh too uh he, pa- he passed away in 2013 which is why i'm speaking in uh, the past tense uh with regard to but he leaves behind a a really interesting career um as one of those cool sort of pioneering figures um that i I find especially fascinating um so i I wanted to give him a shout out uh in his namesake here
0: hell yeah all right so with all that said we have our we have our team set it is time for battle the excelion is readying for battle Laser cannons are armed. Photon torpedoes are ready. Fighters are assembled, and the Mechs have been all equipped with um, these little like nukes on spears. Uh, Coach also mentions that th- this is the first time Mechs are being deployed in combat, uh, which is which is I guess it's I guess it's true. I just didn't think of it because because of how how experienced everyone seems relative to Noriko. Perhaps the everyone else is just much better at faking it. Uh, so that, that really caught me for threw me for a loop uh at that point uh laser salvos are fired at like like broadsides from the the side of a, a ship and the top squadron deploys
2: yeah i think uh th- there's a few like interesting flourishes here that i really like uh for one um we've, we've seen them before technically but i like that the lasers are our lenses and not like what you'd like it doesn't look like a gun or, a, or like a um uh traditional like, gun emplacement like you'd think of like like turbo lasers in Star Wars, um, uh, but also i really love the way uh displays are done um one moment <laughs> sorry about that um i really like the way displays are done here um because they do a lot of really cool stuff with um uh they it, they did the line art and then uh with the copy machine they invert the colors so that it blacks it out and then uh you just let light filter through um uh to do like a, back, a backlight effect to have the, the glow ostensibly um which is just a really cool way of of depicting that uh in my opinion uh and it uh, very like very high detail on a lot of the displays here particularly for the interiors of the the rx units um which is, is sort of uh I know Ano is is was a storyboard artist and not um, like an animation director or anything, but you, you know you could very much feel his uh, prints all over this.
0: Yeah, it really is interesting that, and in, um, I feel like in a lot of other works from the late eighties, early nineties, you know, now that you're watching it in high resolution, you can pause the frame, you'll see that a lot of like what's written there is gibberish. Um, like I was. I need to get back to my watch of Victory Gun because of all the monitors in Victory Gun are just full of absolute nonsense. Um, <laughs> or, or like the, um, the, the read me document from the, one of the early Gundam Wing episodes. Um, but it really feels like everything that you see on you know, control panels in Gunbuster is super intentional. Hmm. In space, Noriko is already struggling to understand where she is and what's going on, Toran's trying to reassure her, saying that he'll work on defense and or he'll work on offense, and all she has to do is cover him. After enduring many shockwaves, uh, whether that's being you know from the destruction of other ships in the fleet or passes of the enemy, uh, Noriko eventually realizes that Torin is gone and cries out for him. Now we already kind of discussed this a little bit, you know, just in terms of the the effect that is derived from not being able to see the enemy. But this really is like a brutal sequence. This really uh, is just like overwhelming uh, the the sense that that Noriko gets like, especially I think the the inadequacy of it because I think it conveys the sense that other people know what's going on, but that she just for whatever reason can't get with it. And in this, you know, in this particularly lethal sequence, it's, uh, it's very effective.
1: It's an absolutely terrifying scene and the music is perfect for it. Like it feels like a horror film. And I also thought it was really thoughtful um, whenever, like I, I've, I've always been very fond of the cockpit shots and um, i in gunbuster like how like everybody has like their own like color um and Noriko's usually like yellow i think um cosme is usually like blue um but like for it to just go in this brief moment where just like you get that like like horror music and just every she's like completely red was just like just a perfect way of setting the tone and incredibly upsetting
2: absolutely I think um, in particular uh, what I like about the sequence is that um, we only see a brief flashes of the enemy but we don't even see other combatants uh, when we're sort of uh, framing things from Noriko's perspective. Um, like, when we're looking through her readouts and that sort of thing, like, she's seeing, like, maybe brief flashes of, of violence happening in the distance. Um, but she doesn't even see Torin. Um, She can't even, like, not even from the get-go is she able to, like, lock sensors on him. There's a sense that she's completely uh, flying blind and uh, helpless in the situation, and I think that's um, very effective. Uh, especially just, yeah, not having any... Because it, it could have been, you know, you show Torin having his uh, horrible death by the evil aliens. Um, but just having him, uh, the way it frames it here, uh, where he just stops communicating, um, and we don't really get that closure I think is far more effective and far more, uh, again, like grounded military SF, um, stuff. Um, just a really great sequence. Um, and really, uh, like kind of gut wrenching.
0: <laughs> yeah. There's like a, 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 an acute loneliness to this idea that you're just out there and. No, no one will find you you can't see anyone no one can see you and and that's it and the communication ends
1: hmm. yeah it's it's terrifying to me but it's also i don't know it it, it does make me like wonder like obviously like Narco will like feels responsible like your partner your partner is gone but from from the onset she says to him like i can't see you and he's like don't worry about it um like it does make me wonder like could she have actually done something like considering like, like it's wild to me too. Cause yeah, this is, this is the, the RX like models. Like this is their first real battle. Like, and they're so small in comparison to these giant monsters that are moving obviously very fast. So I don't, I don't know if, um, the, the sequence says it's like, as it's done is supposed to like kind of just show like her perception of it or if that's actually how it was. It does. It just makes me wonder like, is there really like, like she have done something to help Torin or was it just like, this was going to happen and this is terrifying and a mess. Hmm.
0: Yeah. The extent to which things are Noriko's perspective or are we being, you know, sort of led into the um i guess the the bird's eye strategic view of things is is like a good open question um you know just the you know, point forward is that after this we see Noriko flying back to the excelion through the wreckage of the the one ship that blew up the tardion and at, there's a sequence there of all of these gory mechs uh where there, there's gashes in them and you know you see sort of like the the brains that we saw earlier sort of busted open wound torn open uh things that look like i mean they're meant i think they're meant to be mechanical fluids but they have this feeling of blood or or other viscera and uh and that noriko also is the only pilot who still has has her nuke which gives you that sense that you know everyone else shot their nuke why didn't you shoot your nuke uh noriko Uh, but it it points to sort of the thing i was wondering which is um i don't know if we necessarily get any sort of Closure on this, which is like, what was the expectation? <laughs> you know, because <laughs> it may be the case that they were expecting some attrition. You know, that, that could be just how, what the plan was, is that there would be some, you know, expected losses. Um, but we, I don't really really get that, right? I, it, the focus is on Noriko's perspective. Mm-hmm. Let's, uh, okay, so the one thing that, that happens between the combat sequence and Noriko flying back to the Excelsior is that, uh, there's a little, little more action on the bridge of the ship. And that's where we get a, a I don't, confirmation feels too strong, but the captain speculates that the enemy may be using stars as incubators, uh, for their eggs. And that the force that was sent to fight them was sort of a, a diversion to keep them away from, from Leaf 64. Uh, and so at this point, I mean think the ultimate stakes are clear that this is an alien menace that harvests SARS for, you know, the purpose of, of reproduction. Hmm. Let's get back to Noriko. Cause that's, you know, that's the, the, the focus here. Uh, and we had this kind of like long grief sequence. I would, I would call it, uh, she was wandering through the ship. She passes by the boys quarters and kind of peeks her head in and sees them all grieving, uh, she returns to the spot where they agreed to team up and then eventually returns to where they first met uh, and, and all this whole time she's clearly you know overcome with guilt for for what's happened and in that area where they first met she sees a, a, a door ajar and she goes through and discovers a coach working on the gunbuster unit and at that point, uh, begs him to to help her finally you know achieve something to overcome this feeling of of helplessness that she's experiencing
2: yeah, I think this is uh, again kind of kind of sort of reflecting a thing which is in aim for the ace, which is that um Oka and that is uh, kind of has to reach out um for assistance um several times uh, throughout the series. Um, but uh, I think it it also is a great uh, sort of emblem of Dorico's uh, resolve uh, to do better. It sets the stage for um, you know, well, the next episode really. Uh, what do you know, the end of this episode sets its next one, but um, I, I think it does that in a really effective way and it allows her at least a bit of emotional catharsis um, uh, like being able to kind of openly sob. It's uh like like coach generally is not a very sweet person uh but this is probably him that is most gentle uh in the show uh or one of his more gentle moments uh, throughout the series um which which i greatly appreciate it's nice to have like not not even necessarily like humanizing but just something a bit softer uh for him
0: yeah it's interesting seeing the the dynamic with coach uh in terms of when he just sort of decides to like coach through it, because that's kind of how I felt mm-hmm. about the the earlier sequence with Noriko overhearing the conversation with Kazumi and Coach, which is that like she's 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 not really hearing it, but he's just still trying to coach through it. And mm-hmm. this time around, I I think he kind of um, you know he, he tempers it a little bit. He's, it's a more measured approach. Hmm. Yeah, I... I don't know. Like That does mean that... Oh, go ahead.
1: No, I, I just think, like, like... I don't know. When I, when I watched this, I watched this with my partner recently. Um, he just kept saying, like, I feel so bad for Noriko. Um, he... His, like, opinion was definitely that he felt like she was being pressured into doing this thing that she wasn't suited to do. Um, and while I don't necessarily agree that she wasn't suited to do it, I do feel like there like coach was putting like a lot of pressure on her and everything that's kind of like happened up until now and continuing on is like not is, is due to his actions. So like she probably should not have been out in that battle. Um, she probably actually at that point should not be on that ship. So like it, like, I don't know getting getting like a perspective from that, another person saying like I feel really bad for this person who's clearly like very stressed and feeling this pressure um definitely gave me like a different perspective on on coach's approach towards Noriko mm-hmm.
2: yeah I think the thing that gets me in this instance is that it's kind of just the way he can communicate with people and I think it's it's uh again maybe this is doing some heavy lifting for the text like him projecting his own. Uh, the way he kind of processes his own guilt um, onto Noriko, because his thought is more, well, Tor Torin is dead, and you feel responsible for it. Um, and like, I mean, yes, he is responsible for her being here, but he's not like the manager of this this larger military apparatus, I guess. So he's just like, well, I'm, we we are in this situation. How are we going to to work with it? Um, so the the way he would console someone is by saying. All right, let's knuckle down. We're going to figure out how to do this right, so it never happens again. Uh, and you're going to, to do the gun buster thing. Uh, you're going to bust the guns. <laughs> um, and uh, I, so that that's kind of how I I, I track it um, is that uh, the the coach in general is a very self destructive person, and I think that uh, <laughs> that sort of uh, informs his approach to just about everything um, in his life. But uh, in, in particular, yeah, like because he's um, Because he also recognizes, like, is probably one of the people who can most empathize with Noriko's uh, sadness about the death of the Admiral, too. Um, And it's something that he feels personally responsible for. Uh, So it's like, in a way, training her is uh, sort of cruelly a way of assuaging his own guilt, I think. Um, But uh, just in terms of, like, I think there is is more to his characterization beyond just pushing Noriko very hard. Like, I think there's there's a rationale to why he's doing a lot of this, uh, even if it's not necessarily... I mean, like, things ultimately do work out for Noriko, but, um, like, maybe, like, his approach isn't super justified. I just think there's, um, like, a characterization level, like a like a character psychology level uh, way of, of breaking that down that uh, makes him a more compelling
1: character. Mm, no, that makes a lot of sense to me, because, like, yeah i didn't really think about it in terms of too like he also has like his his guilt that he's been carrying for many years and so he's also in this scene probably very understanding of the guilt that she's currently dealing with
2: again like there's a certain amount of lifting you have to do for the text and it's hard because coach is so stoic uh generally um but like you get you get inklings of that um and i think it is they, they do attempt to at least lay that ground um but yeah, also if you rub up against it, uh, that's completely fair. There are instances of that, in, like aim for the ace, where I would rub up against it.
0: Yeah, I am. I am historically a a coach hater. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> when I say coach hater, I don't mean like specifically Coach Oda. I mean like coaches broadly speaking. Um, I, I've never <laughs> I only, I only <laughs> ever had a sports coach that I got along with, um, <laughs> and that includes my brother, my older brother. Uh, so you know, it's it's I definitely. I struggle with that like there's a feeling in a narrative. The thing about coaches and narratives is that there's almost like a certain sense that it has to pay off in some way and now, of course we kind of know about about where it goes and so i I feel like a lot of times it ends up um i I end up doing a sort of do the uh, you know do do the ends justify the means and there's a real question of here of like what what did the coach? Intend to be the means. Like, did <laughs> did he, you know, <laughs> throw Torin under the bus, uh, for the sake of of Noriko's accelerated development?
2: Yeah, because there is a sense that maybe that he wasn't super privy to them them teaming up, um, that sort of thing, or like that he assigned them together too, because he was because Torin was originally just going to be out there alone mm-hmm. by himself too. Um, we have to remember. So um, again, like it's it's difficult to parse because. C- when, I, I guess this leads into the next thought about this. This being our first peek at the Gunbuster, there's something deeply funny to me when looking at gun, uh, the coach overlooking. Because it, it's like there, you'd kind of get the sense that you don't really see anybody else working on Gunbuster. Like, is is Coach doing this by himself? Is this is this your <laughs> meathead gym coach uh, building the <laughs> Eon in his garage? i
1: thought not the same. Um,
0: it's like a real real megas XLR vibes.
2: yeah exactly um there's just something very funny to me and yeah like later on in the show it's it's the machine coach built and i'm like how literally are we supposed to take
1: this
0: (laughs) i always love a good a good framing shot of what it's when it's just like the robot head looking in through a window like there's always the context of it is always funny for whatever reason like I, i think like um you know the bit from first gundam where uh you know where <laughs> where where the gundam blows a hole in the side of the white base before Ron ral jumps out and like peeks his head <laughs> and just like oh what's going on in here you know <laughs> and it's the same kind like a gunbusters just sort of looking and like oh hey how's it going yeah
2: well, it's a real neutral kind of like exactly high level mm-hmm. shot yeah. uh, and not like 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 a low angle um as opposed to just opposing that with like mexed windows and like turn a and that sort of thing, just specifically peeking in to say hi is very funny. Um, and this one is good. Uh, there was another funny shot earlier. I don't know why. It's not funny, actually. It just made me, it, it just kind of made me laugh when Noriko is walking in on the boys uh, to like, I presume to check and see if Torin might be there. Um, and it's it's completely dark and they, they all look up at her with like dejected faces. I don't know why. It's just something about the looks on their faces. I found weirdly amusing, um, uh, which is bad. It's not It's not good that that was my response, but it was what it was. And I, I should admit to that.
0: It really is like, so easy to take out of context though because like yeah like it's almost like a we know what's going through noriko's head but the like yeah there's a lot of like who knows what questions being asked here you know to what extent were the rest of the boys aware of this connection and you might say okay well it's like a it's high school dynamics so of course all the gossip spreads around quickly we saw that in the girls locker room like i'm like well, does it was it that quick you know what's going on also would they be gathered around like that in the middle of the floor <laughs> all being right. sad yeah. and silent together
2: <laughs> that, that, i think that's that's very specifically what it is it's that it's all the boys gathered in in their circle uh look, looking particularly pathetic i would be um, i would be
0: moping on my bed or something i don't know <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. Just uh, the the gang all gathered around in a semicircle waiting for no. Like it seems like they were just waiting for her to come in, kind of. Yeah. So they yeah. could all just give her the puppy dog eyes. I, it's yeah. Just something about the framing of that was it was very amusing. Uh, the, but and they're all wearing the it, track
0: suits too. Like the at the beginning of the episode when the girls are doing the ghost story, they have like PJs on, and the boys are all are <laughs> all in their uniform track suits. Yeah.
1: Oh my goodness! To to like rewind to from like the um like rewind to like that first scene of like they're having that little summer party ghost story thing. Um, I didn't realize until like watching this Blu-ray version because they had like like little like subtitles and descriptions under a lot of things that um, Cosby was reading "No Longer Human," uh, and I was just like, "That's dark. <laughs> that's a really dark one." <laughs> like, holy
0: yeah. Crap. Wow, that's a lot. That's, huh? All right. Yeah. Okay, Kazumi. All right. Okay. Well, that's uh, jeez. Well, <laughs> I don't know how to get out of that. But um, we you know this is our our first peak of the titular mech, and of course this is print you know principally a uh me- mecha anime podcast. Gumbuster thoughts uh sheena how do you feel about the Gumbuster itself
1: i wouldn't have put it on my body if i didn't like it it's one of the most beautiful designs i've ever seen um it's just very striking just that like massive like star head just very is this this massive intimidating size i think like the only one i like more would Well, it's not even fair. I'm very, I'm very fond of some other like mech designs for sure. Um, Like, I think like my favorite macross is the macross itself, just because it's so massive and like wild looking. And I just think like Gunbuster is also just this very massive, wild looking mech. Um, So yeah, it's just always a joy to me whenever it's on screen.
0: What about you, Ethan? Yeah, I, I generally like
1: it.
2: It's such an interesting hodgepodge of, of design elements, um, too, like like the tall shoulders are are uh evoking or perhaps even invoking uh, the Ideon, um the like very rounded sort of um cylindrical uh limbs on it, like especially the way that the toes kind of flare upwards slightly, um, are like like Trey Mazinger. Um I think it it also has just a very unique palette. Too the the black and orange like black primary orange uh, secondary is is very interesting um, and I like uh, the the consistency with like the the covered musculature um, like musculature covered by like some sort of like fibrous material so that whenever it breaks all the, the wires and oil gets to spill out in in glorious gory fashion um, or and even just stuff like like it, it really does feel like they just crammed all their favorite bits from other robots too because it's got like the Zaku eye and the RX 78 uh, ch- red chin. Um I, I really like it as a design. It's one that like honestly on this rewatch um i I remember thinking it was it was pretty solid, but just the more I see it uh, the more I like it um which is a yeah sort of the same reaction to the opening i suppose uh if I had any complaints about the gunbuster, it's not with the machine itself it's it's with the buster machines, which I can never tell apart um <laughs> but uh I think. The, the combined unit is really good and cool. Um, and I think that's, that's clearly where they place their emphasis.
0: Yeah. I, I, am curious to see how I'm going to end up feeling at the end of this. I, I think the head is really good. The shoulders are really good. I feel like the limbs are where it kind of comes apart for me. It kind of reminds me of the, um, the sequence from premier where they, where they first get the deus ex machina and, um, and, and <laughs> Kayla is like, no, nah, this isn't doing it for me. I I need this needs to change somehow and then like you know it makes it into the you know the the more established design the and and like cuz like with like the cylindrical, you know, especially the cylindrical bits on the uh, you know the arms and legs. I'm curious to see though cuz like so much of the theory, of course is the build up to it and the way it appears, the pose that it strikes, uh, those kinds of things um which you know all really you know cement its status so i w- i'm sure i'll have more to say as we uh, you know as we revisit future episodes uh on this podcast
2: yeah i think in particular too something I, I would uh comment on is i i think it looks better in animation than it does in line art um because like like with the cylindrical arms and legs the way it, um it, they tend to, in animation, they don't keep it super tight on model and they tend to exaggerate the forearms and legs more. Uh, and I think it looks more appealing that way uh, when, when the the hands are a lot bigger. Like it, it makes it feel sort of classic sort of, I mean, yeah, because like the, it has like giant robos finger missiles too. And then I think of it, but like, um, again, it, I, I do see how that, could, that kind of contrasting of things uh, like might not work mm-hmm. for someone to... Uh, cause it is, it is like very kind of retro, like, you know, the, uh, like first generation of super robots, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, kind of slapped onto this thing, which has a lot of other modern elements.
0: And then elsewhere, the enemy emerges from Leaf 64, fresh, fresh enemies. And that's to be continued. And in the next episode uh, bringing us to the end of our discussion of episode three of Gunbuster, first love, first sortie. Uh, any uh, any thoughts about the episode that you wanted to uh, to share overall? Oh, I'm gonna throw it to Ethan first.
2: Yeah, overall, um, I I'll, I'll keep this very brief too. I reread uh, Starship Troopers in preparation for uh, largely for when I was I'm gonna be coming on to talk about the novels, frankly. But uh, I, I also realized rewatching this this is the most Starship Troopers kind of episode. Um, like, in terms of, you know, stealing the good ideas from Starship Troopers, because Starship Troopers is mostly bad. Um, and uh, the Forever War, like, it's the most military SF kind of uh, piece that you get out of this, uh, which I like. I approve of uh, a great deal. I think it's a great transition uh, into uh, the next episode with the introdu- introduction of the Gunbuster. Um, because I think uh, it's uh, very much Anno pulling on, like, his his love of Ideon, uh, in that, you know, Ideon is, at its core, it's a super robot show with the um or sorry it's a real robot show with a super robot plopped into it um and i think gunbuster kind of builds up to that like it's it's hyperbolic uh you know it's starting off with the sports anime thing um but i think this transitional episode that really grounds everything and sets up the stakes uh makes the transition in episode four uh and and leading into episode five hit so much harder um and I, I think is a like its own piece uh, episode three is um particularly where the piece starts to get a bit more of its own identity uh as a work um like it's still you know clearly pulling from its influences as, as many gainax works do um but it, it represents a real paradigm shift uh for the uh, for the text as a whole um and i, I liked it i liked revisiting it um and uh, revisiting i'm doing the dub episode by episode as you guys cover it um, and rewatch the whole series in prep in japanese to prep for this um but i'm, I'm really enjoying the dub so far too um this it's great uh, i it makes some fun changes that make it a distinct work uh from the main Jap- uh the original japanese sort of text um and i'm really excited to hear uh your guys's thoughts moving forward into these uh, uh latter half of uh, gunbuster because uh there's there's so much good stuff there that i really love
0: yeah i think it's good to highlight the um like the, sort of this is like definitely a a point about which the ova turns in terms of the i guess sort of the the stakes being established because i y- <laughs> the stakes are probably not going to escalate too much more like humanity mm-hmm. will be wiped out and the method by which this will happen is clear <laughs> we're, we're good we got it we got the message i mean maybe we'll learn more about you know individual aliens or how they fight or something like that but uh you know in terms of like w- w- what's the stakes it's annihilation baby that's that's it that's we got it we got it clear and then you yeah yeah oh, are you gonna say something
2: Oh, I was just going to say, like in terms of, like I think it's very good at it setting like the the like end game like world stakes, uh, and then moving forward. Episode four is what solidifies the personal stakes yes. uh, and the long term ramifications of like time dilation and that sort of thing, um, and what makes uh, it is so weird because Gunbuster, like you you kind of have to take it as a unit. It feels like it, like despite um, being epi- you know episodes uh, that came out one at a time, it would be very weird watching the show as it came out. Because um, it, it feels like like such a, a piece where you have to take it in all at once, uh, in in my opinion, anyways. Like it feels like a ultimately kind of a three hour movie, um, or like really two and a half hours. Yeah. I guess if you excise the, the science lessons, which you should
0: not. You should yeah, watch, all, watch the all the science lessons because they're great. Of course, uh, even the forbidden ones. Actually, I don't know. I, I haven't watched those ones yet. <laughs> when, I, when I say the forbidden science episodes, I mean the ones that were um, that were not included. The uh, the se- seven and eight
2: yeah yeah the the late ones mm-hmm. not the i i i do wonder too um i know the the later science lessons are denoted specifically the ones that ano directed are called the the new science lessons and I, I wonder if that's a nod to uh when aim for the ace was canceled um the original series it came back as as shin aim for the ace which you know shin mm-hmm. is in japanese is new right. um so i wonder if it's pointing towards that uh, that's a fun little connection um otherwise uh but uh, i'm going to i'm going to stop rambling yeah. and leave it to you
0: that's out. fair no, no, we, oh, yeah again but it, i i think as much as the episode is through norco's perspective and details some of norco's personal struggle it also very much fills us in on you know like what's what are the circumstances what is the crisis that needs solving both in terms of how insufficient is like the replacement level effort to defeat the aliens and also what the aliens uh you know represent hmm Sheena, what are are your overall thoughts about episode three?
1: Well, it's definitely, like, while it has one of my favorite scenes in Gunbuster, the the fight um, scene, it's definitely not my favorite episode. Um, I would say, like, four, five, and six, are at least I I prefer them more, but I think it's a perfect turning point for the series. Um, You go from having this kind of, like, like that first episode being just this, like very like ganky, like sports anime, and then it getting like slightly like it getting more serious and then sad. And I just think that this episode was a really good combination of of both, like of having like you know teenage shenanigans, teenage first love, and also just like the brutality of war. Um, so I think it's I think it's a very necessary episode for the series and. That's why I appreciate it, um, and still, it's it's also just a very a very lovely and very interesting episode. I've never watched and I've never watched a Mecca or any other anime that like starts with a physics paper on screen while two characters are karaokeing like a love song. Like it's very I don't know everything. Everything about Gunbuster is very unique to me, and I. I think like this episode is like special in its own way.
0: Yeah. It's very striking. I, it, it, you know, it has sort of all the pieces and I think identifying as a, um, as sort of a, a, major turning point in terms of, a, you know, putting us on track to so many of the, uh, the shattering conclusions of, you know, episodes four, five, and six, uh, you know, they really, it really, it puts us firmly on that track. Which brings us, uh, yeah, I think to the the end of the discussion. Uh, before we head out, uh, I would love to have uh, both of you have an opportunity to uh, to to plug yourselves. Uh, Sheena, where can people find you? What are you up to?
1: Um. Well, as long as Twitter's still around, I'm on there. Um. You can find me at Miss Macross. Um. I'm also on Instagram at missmacross.com com, and I have a blog at missmacross.com com. Um. I have a retro OVA um, like mega post that I am actually about to like re update with new links and some new shows. Um, so in the next like couple of weeks, like take a, take a peek at that. Um, but yeah, um, don't, don't have anything else going on right now.
0: This is, I, I have, I have sort of a, um, I almost feel sadistic saying this, but like, it's really fun to ask people right now, where can I find them? <laughs> <laughs> really really puts him on the spot. Uh although I guess this week compared to last week, it feels a bit more like uh Twitter might be posting through it, but who knows? Who knows yeah. where, where things will go? Uh, Ethan, what are you up to? Where can people find you?
2: Yeah, you can um find me on Twitter at uh sundown uh underscore McMoon um along with instagram and all the other other services i'm not on on blue ski yet um but uh i probably will be eventually just in case i have a co-host that i've literally never used (laughs) Uh, so if you want to follow me there go right ahead um but uh no and on twitter i usually post uh like archival scans from some stuff i need to clean up and i'll post full pdfs um of those Uh, I I recently posted a panel I did actually at Anime St. Louis 2023 on uh, the works of Yoshiyuki Tamino, Tomino uh, before uh, he created Mobile Suit Gundam uh, which I, I think would be of particular interest for your audience I suppose um and uh, recently, uh, I work with a group of creatives on a thing called Bomb Squad Productions. Uh, we have a little show called Bomb Squad Movie Night. Recently, we had uh, two guests on who are um, one first recent first-timer and one frequent Giant Robot FM guest uh, in uh, Dawn of the Anime Nostalgia Podcast. We had her on for a discussion of the uh, 1983 uh, Canadian science fiction furry-adjacent... Uh, post-apocalyptic uh, animated feature film, Rock and Roll uh, from Nirvana, that, that was very fun to talk about is and is a very weird, cool movie. It's basically um, heavy metal meets a goofy movie. Um, uh, and she was a great guest to have on uh, to discuss it because she's a tremendous fan of that film um, as well. And uh, recently we had uh, Thaliarchus on to discuss uh, Isao Takahata's 1968 uh, directorial debut, um, Horace, uh, Prince of the Sun, uh, which was a tremendous opportunity. I, I that scanned a bunch of those materials, um, uh, including like animation production art by Reiko Okuyama and uh, Yuichi Kotabe, uh, specifically for that recording. Um, and it it's great. It turned out incredibly well. Thaliarchus is, as always, um, uh, a wonderful uh, contributor to these things. Um, and uh, I guess one final plug, sort of related to that, just if you guys want to watch a really good movie, uh, uh, I put up a corrected version of like the restor- recent restoration that's only on WebDL uh, of Horace Prince of the Sun, um, with all the Discotech Blu-ray gubbins, uh whatnot included in it and with the aspect ratio corrected because they had it kind of weirdly stretched uh for some reason. Um but I've I've included that with the English dub and Japanese with English subtitles and uh everything from the discotheque release because to be clear the Discotech discotheque releases is currently out of print um uh, and expensive. Um, and in any ways, the picture quality isn't as good. Uh, so if you want to watch uh, a really fantastic movie in what is currently the best uh, possible version until Discotech inevitably announces a better release of it and I remove this, uh, go check that out. Um, you can find a link to that on, on my Twitter again.
0: Yeah, also awesome. Shout-outs, of course, both to uh, Dawn and because and both uh, excellent excellent folks to have on to uh, talk, talk with things about. I know definitely we'll... At least Thaliarchus will be on for the uh, the, the Witch Mercury retrospective, so that'll be a, a ton of fun when that happens. Uh, to give some Giant Robot FM plugs, of course, if you like what we're doing, uh, you know, rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. That is always appreciated. We are an independent podcast, so it always helps to get the word out there about what we're doing. Uh, if you want to support us more directly, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash giant robotfm. We have some bonus podcast series. We're finishing up our series on What's from Mercury, ready for Mercury. We'll be returning to doing bi-monthly episodes discussing Turn A Gundam, a series that we call Moon Race Wireless. We also have the simulator series where we give Mecha video games the same treatment we give mecha anime. Uh, a bunch of those are already available all for free on the main feed. So if you're interested in that, check out the Armored Core episodes or the Front Mission episodes. And then, uh, you know, we, we, if you want to support us at that level, you'll be able to get the Assault Suits Valkyrie episode when it comes out. And also the um, the Frame Gride episode that we did as well is uh, is up on that feed exclusive to patrons. So if that is of interest, go ahead, check that out. Patreon.com slash giant robot FM. I want to give credit to Dwarf S for our graphic design credit to skin for our art and credit to fretzel hashtag band fretzel for the music that we use in the making of this podcast every time i tried to search leaf 64 to see if it was a real star i got only results for the location of stars in super mario 64.
1: <laughs> right.
2: That was my stinger, hard <laughs> There we go. Uh, I, I was trying to work out. There's an old FMV game called Torin's Passage mm. uh, that I that I was try, I was trying to work into something, but I was like, nah, I can't I can't figure anything out here. It's, it's tor- Torin's passing. I don't know. It's too obscure <laughs> of a reference for anyone to get.
0: Torin's smithereens. Yeah. Uh,
2: <laughs> what remains yeah. of Torin?
1: No longer Torin. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's torn up.